Welcome back. We're at chapter 5 of the Guns of Avalon. Now, in the previous chapter, we had a lot of exposition, a lot of recapping of history between Corwin and Benedict. And in this chapter, Zelazny gets back to the unfolding story. We'll get the introduction of a mysterious new character called Dara. And we're advancing Corwin's military planning, you know, the buildup of his second attack on Amber. And he's here in Avalon. He's here to get this jeweler's rouge, you know, the pink powder that will ignite in Amber. He's going to go to Shadow Earth and have a bunch of special guns made. He's going to assemble a small army. And with his friend Ganelon, who of course is Oberon in disguise, the father, they're going to attack Amber, kill Eric, and Corwin will be king. It's a pretty straightforward plan, but of course a number of things are going to go wrong between now and then. Now, I'm going to try to move pretty quickly through these next couple of chapters. There's not a lot in the way of unusual references. I will say, however, in the top of chapter 5, Corwin has a dream, and it's pretty interesting, this dream. He says, quote, I regarded a big roulette wheel, and we were all of us on it, my brothers, my sisters, myself, and others whom I knew or had known, rising and falling, each with his allotted section. We were all shouting for it to stop for us, and waiting as we passed the top and headed down once more. The wheel had begun to slow, and I was on the rise. A fair-haired youth hung upside down before me, shouting pleas and warnings that were drowned in the cacophony of voices. His face darkened, writhed, became a horrible thing to behold, and I slashed at the cord that bound his ankle, and he fell from sight. The wheel slowed even more as I neared the top, and I saw Lorraine then. She was gesturing, beckoning frantically, and calling my name. I leaned toward her, seeing her clearly, wanting her, wanting to help her. But as the wheel continued its turning, she passed from my sight. End quote. And... It's a pretty cool dream. Obviously, the metaphor here is the Wheel of Fortune and Corwin's on the rise, but not everything is as it seems. And we get another reference here to the tarot. You know, the Wheel of Fortune is one of the trump cards. You know, we had the reference to the Hanged Man earlier, which comes back here now in the dream alongside the Wheel of Fortune. And it's just kind of reinforcing this overall reference to the tarot. And then he comes out of the dream, and Dara appears and challenges him to the fencing duel. And it's a great scene, of course. It's sort of a flirting and seduction through this vehicle of a fencing match. And at the end of it, Corwin says, quote, Who the devil are you? End quote. And the word devil is capitalized, and devil is also a tarot card. So you've got the Hanged Man, Wheel of Fortune, the Devil, kind of all at once, and it's pretty clear he's invoking the tarot. And of course, Devil and Demon is also a recurring motif throughout the Guns of Avalon, so it's kind of a double reference. And, you know, it's a little bit of Zelazny, the poet, with the dream and the metaphors and sort of like Corwin's hopes and fears. And then we get into this scene with Dara. 
Now, of course, if you've read the books, which I'm assuming you have if you're listening to this, you know that Dara shows up pretending to be this innocent great-granddaughter of Benedict. And it's a really cool scene. And of course, in retrospect, pretty much everything she tells Corwin is a lie. And what's interesting about this is that she has Benedict's crystal. She takes out this picnic basket and Corwin says, quote, that's Benedict's best crystal, end quote. And I don't know how Corwin at this point would recognize Benedict's crystal, but nonetheless he does. And Zelazny's using that as a device to bring validity to Dara's story that she is the great granddaughter of Benedict, that she's been living with him. And, you know, it's a little bit of a stretch, but as a reader, we just kind of buy it. Like, of course, Corman recognizes Benedict's crystal. And of course, if she has Benedict's crystal, then she must be living with him. And therefore, we're going to believe everything she says. And then there's a lot of back and forth between the two of them. And it turns out she does have a ton of knowledge about Benedict, of Corwin himself, about Amber. She talks about Julian and Gerard. And she knows stuff about Shadow. And she tells Corwin about this experience where she saw something like a spider web. And Corwin immediately recognizes that as the pattern and he teaches her a little bit about the pattern. And, you know, as time goes on, as the reader, we're basically buying it. We're like, oh, this is pretty cool. It's the next generation. And she's obviously going to play an important part in the story to come. And thinking back, I'm asking myself, did I trust her at this point? Was I already suspicious? And it's a little unclear to me because Corwin basically falls for all of it. You know, if you think about it, Dara's got to be incredibly well prepared for this. You know, for this to fool a guy like Corwin, who's been alive for centuries, he's super shrewd. You know, I suspect, and this is just my speculation, but knowing that Dara is a shapeshifter and knowing that Ganelon is really Oberon in disguise right now, and he's also a shapeshifter. I suspect that Dara shapeshifted into, I don't know, one of Benedict's servants, you know, maybe a close confidant, sometime before this, maybe even years before this. And she has to have been very close to Benedict, you know, to know all the stuff about Gerard and Julian having visited to investigate the Black Road, you know, to have access to his best crystal like she's got to be playing some sort of part in his life for the past months maybe years to be so well prepared for this ultimate encounter with Corwin as part of her larger plot to seduce him give birth to the future king of amber and chaos and so forth it's really impressive planning on her part and if you think about it she and Oberon must have planned it together Anyway, the scene goes on, and finally Corwin decides to take her on a shadow walk. And, you know, this is to show her the power that he thinks she has. And she's a descendant of Benedict, therefore she's got the blood of Amber. Therefore she'll be able to walk the pattern and gain power over a shadow. And, you know, it's probably not a great idea that he's doing this, but he 
he kind of lets on that you know he thinks benedict might be keeping her in the dark on all these things and here comes corwin you know kind of like a favorite uncle who's gonna break the rules and show her the ways of the world and you know this kind of interesting relationship starts to develop and I, I will say it's reminiscent of the shadow walk that Merlin takes Julia on later in the Merlin Chronicles. And, you know, he sort of thinks better of it later because, like, he ends up unleashing this thirst for power. Probably wasn't a great idea. And, and this kind of reminds me of that. Not exactly, but it's it's kind of cool, the similarities there. Anyway, at one point, Dara says, quote, I must go to Amber and walk it, end quote. And she's talking about the pattern. And, you know, that might be the only place in this whole scene where she's actually telling the truth. You know, that's the thing she wants the most, to walk the pattern, gain power over shadow. And she's going to do that at the end of the Guns of Avalon. But in the meantime, she goes on. She tells more stories about the Julian and Gerard visit, which we mentioned. And, you know, by the end of this chapter, Corwin says to her, quote, I need three months. Give me three months and I'll come back and get you. End quote. Again, this is kind of incredible. You know, his plan is to just come steal the great-granddaughter of Benedict. And, you know, it is about three months that he's going to need to get everything together before he attacks Amber. So he's accurate about that timeline. But in the meantime, he says he's, you know, he's going to be back tomorrow. He'll know more. And... You know, he's going to need about a day of Avalon time to go to Shadow Earth and get the diamonds. And as we get into Chapter 6, we leave Dara behind, and Corwin goes on this Shadow Walk. Chapter 6 is super interesting, right? Like, he goes to Shadow Earth, and... Chapter 6 opens up with him leaving Avalon. He's kind of looking back at the city, sees it from a distance... He sees the silver towers. Some of them are still there. Some are gone. We get this kind of nostalgia from Corwin as he makes his way out of Avalon and towards Shadow Earth. And this is kind of important because we get a description of shadow walking that we haven't really had yet. Like, we've had a couple of walks through Shadow, right? At the beginning of Nine Princes in Amber when Random and Corwin are in the Mercedes and Random is shifting shadow like we hear about it there but of course Corwin doesn't even know what's going on and Random's the one doing the shifting not Corwin and then later in Guns of Avalon we get a little bit of that like shadow walk to Lorraine you know when he stops and he finds Lance and who's killed the six guys and then finally we get a little bit when he and Ganelon are walking from Lorraine to Avalon doing a little bit of shadow shifting trying to find the sky and all of that but this is the first time we get kind of an extended sequence. And it's the first time Zelazny uses what I used to call the dot, dot, dot. He's like, quote, the dying of the wind, stillness, dot, dot, dot. Only the click of hoof on rock and the sounds of breathing, dot, dot, dot. Dimness as they rush together and the sun is foiled by the clouds, dot, dot, dot. The walls of the day shaken by thunder, dot, dot, dot. An unnatural clarity of distant objects, dot, 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 end quote, and so on and so forth. And, it, you know, again, you've read the books, you know what I'm talking about. It's a device he'll use. 
and throughout the novels to indicate that he's shifting shadow, that he's on a shadow walk. And it's quite extended here. You know, he's definitely indulging himself, if you will. It's a little bit more of the poetic nature of this novel, a little less action, a little more introspection. And I will say, as we move through these chapters, chapters five, six, seven, there are parts that slow down. And I think, you know, thinking back as a teenager, I was pretty eager to kind of get back to the action. But on rereading, you know, there's just a ton of wonderful language and, you know, the visuals. And if this was a series, you know, or a movie, you could really imagine that this would be the point. This would be the point where you really double down on the special effects of, of shadow walking and of traveling through these parallel universes and creating worlds. And, and you know, it's kind of Corwin all alone, more philosophical, more thoughtful, more brooding. It's kind of his time. This shadow walk, this like, and it's a return to Shadow Earth, but you know, a different version of it. And he's going on this crazy quest to get the diamonds. You know, basically, what he does is he finds this version of Shadow Earth, not the one where he spent all those centuries, but like a slight variation on that. He says, quote, This shadow had never known a Sir Ernest Oppenheimer, and there never had been a consolidated diamond mines of southwest Africa, nor a government to approve their amalgamation of coastal mining interests. Here was the desert called Namib, in a place some 400 miles to the northwest of Cape Town. A strip of dunes and rocks ranging from a couple dozen miles in width and running along that forsaken coastline for perhaps 300 miles on the seaward side. End quote. And he goes on to say that here, quote, unlike any conventional mine, the diamonds were scattered as casually as bird droppings across the sand, end quote. And, you know, he sits down, he's got his rake, he's got a sieve, and he basically starts just grabbing diamonds. And this is all really cool, and there's a couple of interesting things about this to dive into. First, and you know, I've talked about this before, but he's really reinforcing this idea that there's an infinity of variations on shadow. You know, Corin finds this very near copy of Shadow Earth. Like, it's the place he knew, but with just this slight variation where there's no human settlements in South Africa. And, you know, we've talked before, how about that? That's really a Corwin Chronicles concept. You know, that there isn't, any particular importance to any one shadow because there could just be a slight variation on it and it's still shadow earth but it's different in this way or that way and there's an infinity of possibilities and really it's more the invention of the amberite than it is a real place that you kind of return to and you know it's a very shadow walker centric view of the universe you know it's more about that person's imagination than it is about like this total geography of all the parallel universes that sort of go on whether or not there are people there. And then the second thing that's kind of interesting here is like, why was Corwin in South Africa decades earlier? What was he doing there? And it's not clear, but it's just another point on the Corwin Shadow Earth timeline. And where is he exactly? You know, he says it's in the Namib Desert. And that's a real place. It's a coastal desert on the southwest coast of Africa. It's about 1,200 miles. Might be the oldest desert in the world. And the city that Zelazny mentions, 
Orangemund, and I'm sure I'm butchering that pronunciation, you know, but it's that city which he says doesn't exist in this shadow version of Earth, but it does exist in our version of Earth and the one that Corwin spent so much time on. This city, it sits at the southern tip of Namibia, just across the border from South Africa. And it's actually a diamond mining town. It was originally part of a German colony following the discovery of diamonds around 1908 in this area. And in 1915, just before World War I, South African forces invaded. They took control of Orangemund. And eventually those mines became part of the De Beers Company. And that was after the German-South African diamond tycoon Ernest Oppenheimer managed to get control of the De Beers Company. And there's a whole history there. And I guess Elasny would have been up to speed on that because he's calling out some legitimate names and places here. And anyway, Corwin goes there and he's just picking up diamonds like they've been scattered like bird droppings. You know, after that, once we kind of have the idea, like, that's cool, he's just going to get super, super loaded for very little effort. He kind of goes into a description of the whole gunpowder plan. And up until now, we kind of know that he's gone to Avalon to get this pink powder, but... Here he finally gives us a little bit more, and he says, quote, I've met many persons who thought that gunpowder explodes, which of course is incorrect. It burns rapidly, building up gas pressure, which ejects a bullet from the mouth of a shell and drives it through the barrel of a weapon, after having been ignited by the primer, end quote. You know, this is Zelazny doing a little bit of science fiction justification for the different physical properties on Earth versus Amber, but anyway, he goes on to say, quote, my disappointment at the discovery that gunpowder would not ignite in amber and that all the primers I tested were equally inert there was a thing mitigated only by the knowledge that none of my relatives could bring firearms into amber either. It was much later during a visit to amber after polishing a bracelet I had bought for Deirdre that I discovered this wonderful property of jeweler's rouge from Avalon when I disposed of the polishing cloth in a fireplace. Fortunately, the quantity involved was small, and I was alone at the time, end quote. So we get a couple things here. First of all, just to reiterate, this is in direct contradiction to the car chase and gun shootout that happens in Nine Princes in Amber between Corwin and Random and Julian right there in the Forest of Arden. Zelazny's just shoved that under the carpet. For the plot going forward, gunpowder doesn't work in Amber, except Corwin has found this specific pink powder that does ignite, and he's going to have this advantage over his brothers and sisters by building a, an army of guys with rifles. The other thing we get here is kind of Corwin's sentimentalism, you know, his affection for Deirdre, and it sort of shows up, and, you know, he bought her jewelry. I think also here we get a little bit of Zelazny kind of backtracking. He's sort of, in a way, tackling head-on, like, why didn't Corwin used guns on his first assault on Amber with Blaze. Like, why did he just forget all about this and let himself be defeated and blinded and, you know, thrown in a dungeon for four years? And so he goes on a bit of an explanation of that. 
that, you know, he didn't want to do it because, like, he'd be giving Blaze access to the guns and so on and so forth. It's a little bit hard to swallow, but it's nice that Zelazny's going back and kind of covering tracks because this is a really important plot point that no one's ever brought guns to Amber before and he alone has figured out a way to do it. And then, anyway, as he finishes his trip to the desert and his collection of the diamonds, there's just this really awesome sequence at the end there. And again, it's Corwin, he's by himself, he's introspective, and he has kind of this flashback of sorts. And he says, quote, I remember that day, Eric, I was in chains and I'd been forced to my knees before the throne. I had already crowned myself to mock you and been beaten for it. The second time I had the crown in my hands, I threw it at you but you caught it and smiled. I was glad it was not damaged when it failed to damage you. You crowned yourself that day, all arrogance and hasty pomp. The first words you spoke then were whispered to me before the echoes of long live the king had died down within the hall. I remember every one of them. Your eyes have looked upon the fairest sight they will ever behold, you said. Then guards, you ordered, take Corwin away to the smithy and let his eyes be burnt from his head. Let him remember the sights of this day as the last he might ever see. Then cast him into the darkness of the deepest dungeon beneath Amber and let his name be forgotten, End quote. You know, this would be a great scene in the series, kind of a flashback of those very memorable moments, Corwin's defeat the mocking, the blinding, the imprisonment. And it also really serves at this moment in the story to just remind the reader just how passionate Corwin is, how much hate he has for his brother, how fired up he is about revenge. And, you know, Zelazny does this a couple of times throughout Guns of Avalon. He he puts Corwin up as kind of this philosophical introspective, like, oh, maybe I created the Black Road, Amber's in danger, what have I done, I want to be a different kind of king, more empathy, and then it just always comes back to, yeah, but like, that bastard, look what he did to me, I'm going to get back to him, I'm going to kill Eric, and I'm going to be king. And it's it's really, really great. After all that, Corwin's making his way back to the house, Benedict's Manor, where he's staying with Ganelon, and you know, Benedict kind of put the two of them up in his place. And before he discovers Ganelon, Corwin's reciting a poem. He says, quote, White in the moon, the long road lies, the moon stands blank above. End quote. And then Ganelon says, quote, So it does, so it does, Corwin, my lad. End quote. And again, Corwin's kind of surprised by Ganelon. It's dark, and it's interesting. He says, Corwin, my lad. It's almost Oberon coming through there, right? But what is that poem? Well, it turns out that this is from a poem by A.E. Hausman, who lived from 1859 to 1936. The poem is part of a volume of poems called A Shropshire Lad. And Ganelon's use of the word lad might actually be a reference to the title of the volume and he's writing about leaving his beloved and you know the the road lying ahead of him it leads him from my love and you know although he trusts that that same road will eventually lead him back to his love first he has to travel far far away that's kind of the gist of the poem and it's interesting i think that 
Zelazny here means to say that Avalon is Corwin's love and, you know, that his quest or his duty or his desire for revenge, etc., you know, is taking him away from Avalon, but maybe he'll be back one day. And, you know, again, it's kind of Zelazny, the poet, the literary scholar. I don't have any more information on why he would go to A.E. Hausman just at that moment, but nonetheless, he does. And anyway, that's followed by this scene with Ganelon, who has been in this kind of fight, and he makes up this story about how he got beaten up by Dara, and Corwin buys it, and Ganelon says, you know, I came home, I was drunk, I was like coming on to Dara, and she beat the crap out of me, and so on and so forth, and you know, it's interesting because in retrospect, of course, we know that Ganelon has these injuries. He's been beaten up because he killed the servants of Benedict. He basically fought with four people. And you have to imagine, like, that must have been gruesome. It's just it's just cold-blooded murder. But, you know, he's taking on four people and they probably fought back. And, you know, he ended up obviously overcoming all of them, but took a few licks in the process and then at the end of this chapter, Ganelon takes Corwin to the graves and he shows them where he's found these dead servants. Claims he doesn't know anything about it. You know, again, it's kind of like Corwin is losing his edge. It's like Ganelon has these injuries. Claims that a teenage girl did it and then immediately shows him these four dead bodies. Corwin's not putting two and two together, but that's, you know, that's okay. Still, Corwin's like, what the hell's going on? This is not good. Who's done this? Like, why why are these servants murdered? Did Benedict do it? And did he get upset with the servants? Corwin's like, that's not really Benedict's style. So anyway, it's like this terrifying new development. Also in this scene, by the way, Ganelon tells Corwin this big story about how, like, they'd gotten drunk one night way back when, when they were in Avalon together, and that... Corwin had told him this big story about Amber and the mighty mountain of Colvier, and you get kind of this pretty cool description of Amber, and it's it's an interesting paragraph to call out because it's creating this justification for any extra knowledge that might slip out from Ganelon. And Corwin's kind of like, I don't really remember telling you all that stuff, but okay. And so now going forward, if Ganelon says something about Amber... Corwin will go, okay, I guess I told you all that stuff back in the old days. You know, and upon rereading, we just get more respect for Oberon and how he's layering in all of these hints, all this backstory, all these justifications covering his tracks. And I do love the description of Amber. Quote, the green and golden spires of the city, of the promenades, the decks, the terraces, the flowers, the fountains. God, I could almost draw you a map of the place, end quote. And then, of course, after that, we get the I Fear Benedict speech. This is one of the great speeches from Corwin in all of the books, I think. You know, Ganelon's asking Corwin, like, hey, put in a good word for me. Maybe after we're done attacking Amber, I could come back here and, like, be Benedict's general, and he's going to be needing a good man around because he's lost an arm. And Corwin starts laughing and is like, you don't understand who we're talking about. He says, quote, you do not really understand who it was who we talked with in the tent that night. He may have seemed an ordinary man to you, a handicapped one at that, but this is not so. I fear Benedict. He is unlike any other being in shadow or reality. 
He's the master of arms for amber. Can you conceive of a millennium, a thousand years, several of them? Can you understand a man for who almost every day of a lifetime like that has spent some time dwelling with weapons, tactics, strategies? Because you see him in a tiny kingdom commanding a small militia with a well-pruned orchard in his backyard. Do not be deceived. All there is of military science thunders in his head. He's often journeyed from shadow to shadow, witnessing variation after variation on the same battle, but with slightly altered circumstances. He's commanded armies so vast you could watch them march by day after day and see no end to the columns. Although he is inconvenienced by the loss of his arm, I would not wish to fight with him, either with weapons or barehanded. It's fortunate he has no designs upon the throne, or he would be occupying it right now. If he were, I believe I would give up at this moment and pay homage. I fear Benedict. End quote. It's so awesome, right? And a couple things here. One, as we said earlier, like how long has Benedict been alive? You know, he talks about several millennium, but earlier he said there had been 1,500 years of Oberon having children. So clearly Benedict is doing this kind of like thousands and thousands of years of military practice in shadows where time is running slower, and that would make sense. He's also foreshadowing the fact that he is going to fight with weapons and a bit barehanded with Benedict in an upcoming chapter. And so this just kind of creates a lot of drama around that when it really does happen because you're thinking like, oh man, how's Corwin going to defeat Benedict? He told Ganelon earlier he wouldn't even want to try fighting him. And then finally, Ganelon says that Benedict's coming back tomorrow. He's cut his stay in the field short by a couple of days and then Corwin's kind of panicking he's like we got to get the hell out of here we got these dead servants I got my diamonds you know the pink powder should be ready in the morning and we got to get it and we got to go before Benedict gets back and so Ganelon turns in Corwin goes on kind of a walk takes a walk out back eventually runs into Dara and we know what happens this has all been the big setup for this moment the servants are out of the way. Oberon, as Ganelon, would have known exactly that Dara's waiting in the backyard, and it's why he's going to bed early. Dara and Corwin talk about stuff. You know, Dara's like pretending that she can't believe you know, that people don't get along in Amber. She can't believe that Oberon would let all this stuff happen. Corwin says, quote, Oberon is no more, and my brother Eric sits on the throne, end quote. And it's so weird that he keeps saying that, that Oberon's no more, Everybody's just, again, pretending that Oberon's not alive, even though they all know he is and no one's looking for him. At one point, Corwin says that Benedict, quote, has remained away from Amber for a long while, and for all Eric knows, he's no longer among the living, end quote. And that's just mildly interesting, because in retrospect, we do know that Eric knows that Benedict is alive at this point because of the Julian and Gerard incident, the visit of those two when they were doing the investigation of the Black Road. It was at that point that Benedict had to kind of reveal his location to Eric. And so pretty much Corrin's the only one in the dark at this point. He's really living in a lot of ignorance up until really like the end of Hand of Oberon. And we'll talk more about that in Sign of the Unicorn, but that is kind of one of the fascinating things about this series is just how kind of stupid Corwin looks in retrospect. And he's well-intentioned in many ways, but he really has the story all wrong until quite late in the series. At one point, Dara says, quote, I'm surprised to learn there's so much distrust and plotting in Amber, end quote. And that's got to be like 
the most unbelievable bit of acting from Dora of all the acting that she's doing. Like that one is just the best. And you can just picture her doing her best to not burst out into laughter when she says it. And then anyway, finally, you know, she kisses Corwin, seduces him. And of course, this is the night that Merlin is conceived. And Corwin says, quote, if Benedict ever found out, he's going to be more than just a little irritated with me, end quote. And that's the end of chapter six.